0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School,
1: this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome
2: back to Wharton Moneyball, another virtual edition of Wharton Moneyball. We'll be doing it virtually until we can be back in the same space, which will happen eventually. But for now, you have the whole crew coming at you via Zoom. Eric Bradlow is here, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey. Good afternoon, fellas. How are you?
1: Excellent. How are you doing? How can anyone be right
2: now? Well, uh, it is at least sunny and bright and beautiful in Philadelphia on the day we are recording. We're going to do a format that we've been doing, which is talk about coronavirus up top. We may go quarter of a show. We may go half a show. It feels important to talk about analytics as we um, talk about coronavirus as we talk about analytics because, one – A lot of stats and modeling to talk about, but also it affects our lives and it affects our sports, which is what we're usually talking about. So in the first half hour, guys, I've gotten to where I'm just really interested to come around and see you once a week and find out how you've been thinking about the coronavirus and what has caught your eye in the world of coronavirus.
3: So what has caught my eye in in this is uh, what happened here on Saturday. I wasn't present, um, but Philadelphia, I believe, was the site of maybe the largest Protest rally slash march in the country. Um, I saw some of the photographs. I don't know whether the numbers were over, it was, I think, 000. upwards of
1: 10,000.
3: Oh, I thought um, it was more than that. I thought they were predicting it. At, 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 I thought they said the crowd was about 100,000.
1: Oh, wow. Um, that I mean, I was there, uh, I was so, I, I was present. Um, and it was certainly, I mean, not that I'm good at estimating people from the ground or anything <laughs> like that, but like it was, it was
3: certainly the largest crowd I've ever
1: been. attended.
3: Uh, so, it was, so, the reason why, without, so the reason why this is particularly interesting is that people are asking or wondering when, what it will mean if there is or isn't a spike in infections and when will that happen. And so the way I'd like to describe it is, well, what happened in Philadelphia in some broad sense, if you want to look at it positively, was an experiment was run. The first experiment of this size hasn't been run since 1918, when they when there was a, the War Bonds March, right in the which ended up making a big spike in flu deaths, and this was a huge experiment in running a basically a, a, a gigantic public gathering and the question is how many what what can we learn from this so the good the good side is that this is that we're going to get some information and so if there isn't a spike in infections that would be an incredibly nice result and and if there that doesn't happen because that would mean a lot and if there is a spike in infection, well, it will mean something there, too. So there's a lot to, to, to think about. And the question would be, when are we gonna, is that data going to come in? And that's, I think, the, the analytics question. When will that come in? And I think the first question to ask is, how long does it take for, before, in, until symptoms show? And the, there's a, a recent study that suggests it's averages about five days. That's the median, not the average. Five days. But two to 11 is about almost everyone. It shows up between 2 and 11. But the, given the, the kind of people who attended, and Shane, you were there, you can speak more directly. These were young people, so they're probably not going to ex- experience serious symptoms. So it's the next round when the, the pe- people they pass it to, they'll oh. start showing. That's the, that's the question. That's what people are talking about. Got it.
0: So Yeah, so let me, I want to, I rarely, so rarely do this on Wharton Moneyball because I love everything that Adi mm-hmm. says. But I want mm-hmm. to I wanna tweak them a little bit for using the word experiment. Um, This is not an experiment. And there's a specific reason why, because it has a big uh, deal for who the inferential population is. Let's be clear. Let's imagine it was 100,000 people out, okay, And we look at the number of infections. These are the people that chose to go out. So these individuals, we assume, may well be healthier than the general population. I think there's certainly a uh, people, at least regardless of whether they're wearing masks or not, are told if you're symptomatic, you should probably shelter at home, assuming that's somewhat effective. So the one thing I want to point out is, is that I wouldn't necessarily take this data and say, well, therefore, anybody can go out. So I don't think that's the inference anybody would want to make from this. And then the second challenge you face is just because the it's not the infection rate that you're getting a measure of. You're getting a measure of the number of tests that are come back positive. That's very different than the infection rate. So the question uh, uh, Kate asked, what caught my eye? Everyone keeps asking me, Professor Bradlow, how do we separate out the fact that the number of tests may be increasing with the number of people that are testing positive, the number? And of course, the rate of positive tests can address that in some sense, but I just wanna say, Be careful about expecting what the spike is going to be, because these are self-selected people who chose to go out, who I claim would be a younger, healthier population. And if that's the inference you want to make, you've got all the data you want.
3: You know, I'm going to just jump jump in because, uh, Eric, you were directly talking to me. So I'm going to just say, when I say an experiment, actually, I think the experimental unit is not the person, but it's the city. So there are cities that didn't have these rallies and cities that did, and that's what I mean by we can compare. And, and, I, still, and I still,
0: and I still, and I, I just want to say the technical term of experiment means there's randomization. Yeah. It's not well, ready. it's
3: not; it's a natural and,
1: experiment. So we, well, just, right, but I mean, you know, to the extent I mean, I I'm not sure how many large U.S. cities in the U.S. did not have a rally like this, but they're probably very different on whatever confounding. You know, I mean, like it's 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 talk about an imbalanced treatment and control group, and even that natural experiment. I think it'll be an interesting, I mean, I do think there's some information to, you know, if we don't see a spike, I mean, I will say sort of as, as a person on the ground at this, that every single, I, I did not see a single uh, protester not wearing a mask, mm-hmm. like the, okay. essentially the entire day. I mean, other than kind of taking them off for a drink of water, et cetera, et cetera, everybody in the crowd was wearing masks. And, you know, we've talked on the show A lot over the last few weeks about, you know, the kind of data or scientific studies that are coming out kind of looking at outdoor transmission. And, you know, especially if everybody's wearing masks. And so, you know, you know, if there is kind of an absence of a spike, well, that's depending on whether or not we can actually measure that spike or not. if, If there's an absence of a spike, that might be further evidence that, you know, we don't have to be as concerned about kind of outdoor transmission especially when people are wearing masks like in a baseball game yeah like yeah. at a baseball game for
0: example I, uh, shane i agree with you and now i'll this i'll go back to my praising what adi says this is what <laughs> Adi has said a couple weeks ago which is that in this case a negative result may be extraordinarily informative mm-hmm. and the fact is um an absence of a spike to me provides not only say clear cut but provides me more information than if there is a spike we could say okay well could be due to testing it could the number of tests it could be due to the self selected population that choose to go out it could be that the people that go out to these uh to the uh protests also are more or le- less likely to social distance when they come back and so therefore these are mobile people and therefore these people have a higher r factor and greater spreadability so to me a negative test there would be an easier inference in my view than if there were a big spike. And now we have to try to causally try to infer what might've driven it. I
1: totally, I totally agree that. I think a negative result would have an easier interpretation because, you know, even a positive result, like a quote unquote spike, um, you know, I mean, Memorial day weekend, things were already sort of opening up, you know, kind of immediately before a lot of these, uh, this, uh, these protests began. So that's kind of confounded in there as well. I, I I'll kind of point out just what you were also arguing that like even trying to observe a spike, you know, trying to kind of define even a spike in a con- in the context of how much like our testing norms are changing over time, you know, like, I mean, we could easily, quote unquote, see a spike, a, a spike in the number of cases, just because there's kind of like a ramp up in our testing procedure. So I think we'll, we'll probably have to turn to things like, you know, death, uh, a spike in, in, in deaths or something that's a little bit, yeah. you know, perhaps, so that's not even, you know, necessarily. Time but real real quickly, either.
2: on that point, let's just pin that one down, because that was an idea that a few organizations had up front. Let's use deaths as a more precise measure. Yeah. And, um, and, and it's caught on, it's become more common over time, but we have to also acknowledge that that's going to be more, it's going to be a bigger lag. And and
1: deaths, death norms, you know, the kind of process that leads to deaths is also potentially something that's changing over time as well. Right.
3: So let me just, uh, I can actually follow up because I look very closely at Philly data, which has remarkably some of the best data in the country. And I mean, Philly, the city, not Pennsylvania, they're actually tracking not only deaths, but they're, Tracking the death to the date they happen so they don't come in clumps. They actually look like Poisson variation. It's really beautiful. They're also tracking hospitalizations. And I don't think anyone else is tracking that. And I think hospitalizations is possibly the, one of the best things to look at, because it is faster than deaths. It happens much more quickly, um, and it is uh, also quite reliable, and it isn't necessarily a function of the number of tests. If you get hospitalized, it didn't matter whether or not you, you were one of those testing pools. And the testing pools uh, by the Eric way pointed, it, it, yeah. is,
2: it, it won't be as affected by advances in treatment as deaths will be. That's yeah. right,
3: and that, and deaths deaths seem to be diminishing as a function of. It's hard to figure out as as actually actually calculated this data, the death rate as a function of hospitalizations is seems seemingly dropping so fairly substantially at least in Philly. Used to be about a shocking number. It was about one in five people hospitalized were dying. Um, the latest two or three week lag shows much closer to about a one in twenty. Uh, uh, population dropping dying that would be conservative so that be i mean that'd be a, a good as a lower bound estimate maybe as, as little as higher as 1 in 10 but that's a lot lower than it was in the beginning which mm-hmm. suggests that there might be some actual good good news on the on the on the front of treating the illness or
1: sele- it could just be selection
3: bias that the sickest of us were the ones that went to the hospitals earliest Correct. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But the reason why testing is going up so dramatically is you you can't. As Eric, you know, you went for your physical and got yourself a serology test. You probably could have gotten a COVID test thrown right in. Just that, that's what they're doing. That's right. Oh, you did get it. You did an actual COVID test and a serology test.
0: Well, and I'm so, saying no, no, no. I'm sorry. They took my blood, and while they took my blood, I said, "Could you run a COVID test?" I had a blood sample, and so why not?
3: Oh, well, the COVID test is, uh, so that that was for a serology. I
0: did not have an active COVID test. I had a serology test. You had a serology. Right. So
3: I, I've actually talked to individuals who've gone in for the serology and got the, the, the actual active uh, test thrown in because it was there and it's paid for by the government. It's yes. not clear to me what
1: the downside of doing those both together <laughs> always is, yeah. right?
0: Right. So I want to see if I can draw an analogy here that maybe can tie this together statistically. So- I'm working on a project currently it's in marketing, but it's a statistical problem where let's imagine you're, and you'll see the analogy, let's imagine you're a firm and you spend a certain number of dollars on advertising. Let's say you buy Facebook ads. Okay. And maybe you can see how many people were exposed and then maybe you can measure how many people clicked. And then eventually, you know, you could measure how many people buy, but at the end of the day, let's say we just treat it like a black box. You spend X, you get Y purchases. So, Maybe one way to, not re- don't say resolve, but think of all of this is, let's say there were 15,000 people at this event. Let's imagine we could know how many, we, whether we could trace these people or not. 15,000 people at an event, how many incremental deaths do we have? In other words, I don't care about the sausage in between. If you don't care about the sausage in between, just like I spend X, I get this much more purchases, this many people went outside in a, in a rally I get this many more deaths, then in some sense, you don't have to worry about the causal nature of it. It's just this many people go into the box, this many people come out. So do you guys agree with that analogy? Depends on what your objective is, right? That's what I'm asking. If the objective is, I'm just interested to know if I were to hold a, forget the fact that I have to make an extrapolation, but let's say I said, if I held a baseball game with four times the number of people, that went to the that went to the rally let's say there was 15,000 at the rally and 60,000 went to a football or a baseball game i mean could i just take a simple estimator and say four times the number of people roughly no
1: i mean i mean the short answer no and it's not really a statistical answer but i think you know people moving around through open space versus sitting next to each other for like a 3 to 4 hour period it's just a very different kind of communicate you know infection dynamic i think i mean i'm sure there would be some so information you're, you're you could in draw but i
3: certainly don't think it, it, it would a be
0: similar let's call it motion oriented context as opposed to like again i'm just trying i'm just trying yeah. to say statistics we care about science we do care about the intermediate steps but if you didn't care about the intermediate steps if you were just how many go in how many come out then in some sense the, the c- discussion I was having with Adi is not as relevant. I don't care about the cause. I just care about how many people went into the rally, how many people came out and got the disease or died or got hospitalized. Yeah, I think Basically, there's some merit there saying- to
1: that. I mean, would would you would like would you want to create like a scatter plot, for example, that like you know plotted x axis is like size of size of uh, size of crowds. You know, the, the cities are the units in this, and it's size of crowds, and then it's like you know the y axis is some measure of you know, some outcome measure related to COVID. I I, I mean, I can imagine gathering some d- information for that, but without the intervening sort of steps, it's hard to kind of make yeah, it kind of
2: only relevant if you don't prospect. Yeah,
1: it's hard to make it prospective to other situations without understanding those underlying mechanisms.
2: You, you, you only do that if you believe them to be the same. And so they're the same across situations or they're the same over time. And Sometimes it holds on off and often it doesn't hold, and that, that's a very, very strong assumption. If you have n- no model or no mechanism
3: in between, and also there's a, a problem that, that makes it difficult is assessing the the variance, the natural variance of these these changes. So a lot of th- a lot of people have been graphing and tracking the number of. COVID, well, number of total deaths. That's a great number because there's no, there's no ambiguity there, right? As you talked about, Eric, it's, it's, it's out. That's right. And so they look uh, by month, like how many total deaths there were in, say, April, and they compared it to what the average number of deaths or last year's number of deaths in April. And they, they plotted, I saw the New York Times did this, the, the gap, like, and, and yeah. how, much, how many more deaths. But what they didn't show was how that number varies year to year. Right. And it's actually far more variance. Year to year variance is actually pretty big. Because we have different different epidemics that hit. I mean, essentially the flu at, it changes in, in magnitude. Usually, it, it, I think the number yearly is something like thirty thousand or forty thousand. But the worst flu outside of a yeah. real epidemic can be seventy or eighty.
0: You're obviously Adi, addressing the most what I, what I consider the most fundamental question in statistics that got all you know a lot of us excited about being statisticians. Someone right. says the expected numbers twenty thousand and sixty fifty five thousand died. Okay, well. Is thirty five thousand a big number? I don't know. Yeah, tell right. me Very, I can that. tell you it's more. But I, I you yeah. know, if the standard error mm-hmm. is a hundred thousand, then you know. Well, let's not let's that
2: do much that. More. Let's do that because we've all seen those graphs and they're pretty compelling. And and but there's no benchmark. That's, very, that's a very clean way. Well, people, well, this let's do this because it's very smart. It's a very wise approach you're taking, Adi. So just give us some sense. Give us an intuition, because I think your answer is going to be you're going to shrink it in some way. Mm-hmm. And give us some intuition for how much we should shrink. And now you're going to say we, we don't know if we don't know what the variance is. But give us something to do. If London, if the if the F, if the Financial Times says, just say that the unused, that the deaths above average in London in March were ten thousand. If they say that, how how should we think about shrinking that down to zero as a function of? Well, look, sometimes it's you say the average is whatever twenty thousand. But sometimes it's thirty-five, and sometimes it's four, and so we got to consider that when we decide how unusual this is. So we're going to shrink it in some way, but give us some give us some intuition for how we should shrink that.
1: Day. Or at least put like kind of an error bar, you know, kind of like it would be nice to sort of see what the what it what that figure has been in the last over the last ten years in London.
3: Exactly, that's all. You, you know, want. just I mean, to kind of I'm like with- is is
1: this the highest in the last decade? In the last two decades? I mean, obviously, the farther you go back the more data you have to make that comparison but you're also then bringing in well, that's you know awesome. a lot of time trends and I kind of overall depth and stuff Same. like that i mean this so, is
0: exactly cade's um, yeah. valid criticism of my purely empirical what goes in is what comes out well you know so how many years back are you willing to assume yeah. that things are stationary that that's relevant data you know as you know, I would expect the number of deaths just due to things to decline maybe over time as medicines get better and we understand things well, better. Well, number
1: of deaths as the population increases, though, well, like, like a, a death rate. Yes, yes I mean, de- I it depends on how we're norming it, to too. It's
3: very complex. Yeah. Let me let me. The way to actually handle it is to try to convert something into Poisson variation or sort of natural variation. Howdy,
2: now you've said Poisson twice. You need to I, I what Poisson is. All right. So
3: basically, the, the the Poisson process is the most well understood and most useful model in, in statistical probability modeling, and essentially the idea that of random events. Um, so and anybody's sort of probability of dying in any given instant is uh is some constant and then we have just lots and lots of people and so deaths occur into sort of this random scatter you might call it that way uh, so i
2: think i my my distant impression is that it's something like a waiting time is that it's re- at least it's related to waiting it's very
3: much waiting time so the so if you have exponential waiting times the number of arrivals in a fixed period is Poisson. It's a beautiful, beautiful mathematics that underscores all of this. In fact, it's the, it's the basics of epidemiologic mathematics. Is okay. these branching processes and death and, and birth processes are fundamental to modeling exactly the systems that we're talking about. And the problem with, With um, one of the reasons why we see large increases and decreases in, in, say, monthly deaths, is has to do with these these influenza epidemics or or that happen in the winter time, and the 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 populations that are most susceptible are the aged. If you're 85 years old, your probability of living through one of these is not that large in any given and regular uh, time. uh, regular seasons. And those are the two most common way. the most common ways out, I should say, are influenza, flu, the, they usually lump them together, and heart disease. And when someone dies in, the, in a nursing home, they just they often don't even bother to really do an investigation for, for why they died. Because, you know, you're 85, 90 years, you're not in good health. And, and they just say, okay, this is one of, the, one of the two. And this is one of the reasons why it jumps so much for year to year. So to, to return to what I said, sort of random scatter, the trick would be is to look not at the at the seniors, not at the nursing homes, but look at everybody else and look at that spike, because that's much more likely to be a nice flat background. Unless, I mean, what would cause a, a, a huge um, spike in 40-year-olds in dying if it weren't a major epidemic? And that gives us a nice background for which we would get nice Poisson variants, and we can actually specify what the standard deviation is without looking at the previous years. And, okay, and that so- would be the way to look.
1: And I'll just also point out, like looking at younger populations, you know, like part of the problem is, you know, to a certain extent, when you're talking about excess deaths due to COVID, you know, you're implicitly assuming somehow that if this person died with COVID, they wouldn't have otherwise passed away, they wouldn't have otherwise died. And -hmm. if you are looking at younger populations, that's a little bit more of a tenable argument. Very good.
2: It's also Is it also safe to say that uh, you would expect, expect it to be flatter, more consistent with larger populations? Absolutely. It's, it's related, right? Okay, right. so that, those, these are all cautionary notes for us as we look at those kinds of data. Guys, a, a somewhat related question as we transition towards the sports part of our conversation just a little bit before the break. There's news out this week that some of the colleges who've had their athletes return to campus in the last couple of weeks have found some with positive COVID tests. Not the immunology test, but the actual active case. And my question to you is, so I forget how many on the Alabama football team, four or five, turn up positive. People have had very strong reactions to this. My question to you, and it's it's an open question, is it good news or bad news that Alabama found four (laughs) returning athletes with positive COVID-19 tests?
3: Can I just interject a, a simple laboratory thing that is very important? The virus, the, the technology that uses a PCR test or sequencing DNA, that doesn't care whether or not the virus is active and can actually transmit illness. It can stay around, and this has been observed in your sputum, in your body for a long, long time. So just because someone turned positive doesn't mean they either have it, had it, or can give it. And that's just a, a gloss to throw on on that as okay. you guys interesting. Okay, good, helpful, great.
0: So just to try to understand the, the data, i heard about that from Alabama. But I just want to understand something. Because whether I'm happy or not depends on what your, your answer is to my following questions. Were these people tested prior to coming to Alabama? So now, because let's, let's say they were, and they tested negative. But now they're at Alabama, and they test positive. Well, that's a different issue and problem. That suggests that we could bring everybody back to campus. But because exposure happens through other sources, people won't be as safe on campus? If your answer is no, they didn't have it or they weren't tested, but now they test positive, it might suggest, hey, we really need to do testing of everybody before they come back and do it frequently. So do you know, Kate, were they tested before they came back and now we've got positive tests?
2: I I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to speculate that the vast majority of them will not be tested before they come back, but I I don't, I don't know that. And of course, every school should have a procedure and they probably have different procedures. But one of the things I think you're suggesting is they should be tested. There should be a test just before they arrive, essentially. So it's kind of what
0: the NBA is planning, right? I mean, they're not just letting you go into the bubble. They're, they're Mm -hmm. letting you go into the bubble if you've tested negative and they're letting you stay in the bubble If you continue to test negative and otherwise you got to get out of, you got to quarantine and then possibly you can rejoin the people in the bubble, but you know that you have to continue testing. So you're,
2: you're going in a more, that's great point, Eric. It sounds really important. I, I was simply raising the question of, you know, it's bad, in that, look, this is going to be complicated. There are, it's not just Alabama, either. I believe, Auburn, Oklahoma State, some other schools, they're already having to quarantine some of these athletes because they've been testing positive. And given how many athletes, and even outside the football programs and all these other programs, and they mix, they inevitably mix in some parts of the campus, the chances of their being able to, you know, keep everybody healthy long enough to play a full season just seems so remote. On the other hand, they were able to identify seemingly right away that these athletes were positive and they were able to get them quarantined. And so something about the process, at least potentially yeah. is, is working well, though, of course, Eric's asking some detailed questions at Matt. I
1: don't see why we couldn't just like, you know, test every day. And I mean, this just ends up being kind of like, you know, and if you test positive, it's like the concussion protocol, you're just monitor, you know, you're monitored and, you know, you have to wait a couple of weeks before you can kind of come back. And so, you know, uh, uh, A particular student's availability week to week during the college football or professional football season will be very much in question as we kind of go through this, but I don't see why they couldn't still kind of continue with the operations, Mm -hmm. but be monitoring everybody that closely.
3: I know you said you didn't know and, and that's, uh, uh, that's fair, but I would venture strongly using priors in my head, made up priors, that these are almost certainly the tests they either took before they got there or, or the day they got there and they showed up positive. I doubt these are, these are people who, t- who were, got to Alabama, started camp, were negative, and then showed up positive. If it's the latter, that would be horrifying. <laughs> well, uh, and, unfortunately- And, and if unfortunately, it were the former, I wouldn't consider you concerned at all. Unfortunately, this
2: is details from from Matty D. Now, Matt Matt says the conference's guidelines. I'm assuming that's the SEC. Players had to be tested within 72 hours of entering the facilities and daily after activities begin. Mm-hmm. So that's so, pretty lax on the front end and yeah. lax in a way that you wouldn't appreciate.
0: Well, well, it, it could I think also that, be, there could be lots of explanations, right? I mean, look, it's lax on the front end. Um, 72 hours provides a lot of time for potential exposure, right? Um, and also, um, let's also not forget that, again, Adi brought this up a couple of weeks ago, depending on which test, there's a bunch, I mean, there are false negatives. Yeah. And so there are false negatives and false positives. The COVID tests themselves, not the serum test that I, the serology test that I took, the COVID tests themselves aren't that accurate. And so my view is, um, if, if we had an infinite number of tests, because I think Shane would agree with this, given yeah. we don't have an infinite number of tests, well, I want to see Alabama back on the field as much as the next sports fan. I'm not sure if I was trying to minimize any metric for society that that necessarily would be the people I would be testing daily. How about nurses? How about doctors? How about firefighters? How no, about- that's right.
1: I, how about I, you know, when I sort of, of said why couldn't we just test these guys multiple times a day, I, I, I am kind of under this like I mean I'm not quite sure how you know this nation can't just kind of ramp up its testing. You know, I am kind of assuming like essentially an infinite test kind of world.
3: Well, healthcare workers are being tested very regularly. That that's, that's already imposed. And, and for the doctors that I know and nurses and, and in, and in the, the caring profession, generally, they are being tested right now, almost, I don't know what the, what the frequency is, but it is a lot the i i I think there's a lot to learn. I think that we'll see what happens in the in the next couple of months, but I, I I do expect that uh that this is I'm hopeful that this was just a that, that front end bulb which com- comes from you know residual infection that are hopefully inactive and and hopefully they'll be on the field. not that I'd like to see Alabama on the field necessarily but
2: <laughs> well, how do you make it It's a nice point and I don't, I, you're you're more detailed on that test than a lot of us, and it's good for us to know that those tests can come out positive even if you're not 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 actively sick not contagious not symptomatic all those things can still come out positive i just want to before we go to break give eric props he suggested a long list of people he'd rather see tested before college football players i just admire that he didn't list baseball players because i suspect that's what is in his heart as well all right fellas uh that's been the first half of wharton moneyball we still have a second half to go
0: you're listening to wharton moneyball
2: On business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, another virtual edition at the midway point covered in the first half, as we usually do, what caught our eye in the world of coronavirus as an important background for all of our lives, foreground for some of our lives, and certainly relevant to the sports conversations. Rolling into this half hour, we'll talk more sports. Guys, on the way out, a few minutes ago we mentioned baseball and oh my goodness. Oh, I'm just so angry. Just even thinking about it. Well, so look, we, we've talked about it some in the past. It's becoming more and more plain kind of what the argument is here. What's, what's your sense of what's going on in baseball? And what's your sense of whether you'll actually see much baseball this year?
3: I'm so I'm I actually thought with positive. I had great hopes that we'd be playing baseball. That seems to be dwindling. Most people seem to be blaming the owners. It's certainly a, a fight over money. It's not over safety. It's not over it's all the things that you think they might be fighting over. They, that's not what they're fighting over. They're fighting over money. And, uh, and that bothers me because I think it's the civic responsibility of, <laughs> of the United States citizens and owners and players to get baseball back. Sorry. So Adi, right.
2: I've, I've been entertained by your 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 moral argument but you know I am reminded that in at previous times like in World War 2 they said we must have baseball we got to keep on going we're going to play soccer in World War we're going to play soccer in the world because we because it's important so I think you have some you have some good history on your side there thank you um, for
3: reminding the world I,
2: I just want to we'll talk more about it but I just want to when you say some money it's Let's not be fooled into thinking it's about just this year's money. A lot of the argument is setting up for the collective bargain discussion next year. They're probably going to have to come off of full pro rata in order to, in order to get this thing done. Yeah. And they already, don't agreed it, to, fair,
1: they already agreed back in March to a prorated kind of contract yeah. where, you know, back when there wasn't necessarily much hope the season would be played at all. But you're if saying
0: season- 100% of the game, 100% of the prorated game. There's two prorations hundred. If you play half the games, you get half your money. But now yeah. you're saying if, you, if the current proposal is if they play half the games, they get a half times 0.75 of their exactly. money. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the, the only way game. that's going to go through, this, this gets back actually to more yeah. of about the distrust between the players and owners about where the revenue comes mm-hmm. from in baseball and that the books are not transparent. Because if the books mm-hmm. were transparent, you could say, look, we're going to get this much revenue money. We're going to get this much ticket money. We're going to get this much concession money. It's all in one big pile. And you'll get the same share as you get in the collective bargaining agreement.
1: And I I, I kind of, I, I wonder, you know, because I look at this and I look at kind of the, the NH, uh, the National Hockey League and the National Basketball, National Basketball Association, they've kind of already uh, come up with plans that... The players were on board with. And I kind of, I've been trying to think about like why Major League Baseball is struggling to put together a similar kind of plan. One is that they're trying to do kind of a whole season as opposed to just finishing off a season. Um, The other is that, you know, as kind of has been observed, the union dynamics are, of course, different in every sport. And there's an upcoming collective bargaining agreement. I think that's kind of, as you guys have sort of over mentioned, that kind of is the elephant in the room as far as the MLB negotiations go. And also, you know, I mean, we, we certainly talked in previous shows about um, that specifically to baseball, so much of their kind of revenue is generated from, you know, in-person attendance at these games. And so that maybe changes the dynamic a bit, though. I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, at least hockey, a large part of their revenue is also generated by in-person attendance. So I think they're the somehow and I'm not actually even sure about the like how they're actually com- what the player compensation um, looks like in hockey right now, other than just the players were on board with their playoff It's plan. crazy,
2: crazy complicated. Every, every Things was escrowed. It's just a complete yeah. disaster in hockey. Plus they have a lot less money to play with, but they've, they don't have this union ownership distrust issue. And I really like the point you make that baseball's trying to sketch a whole season as opposed to these other leagues have the advantage, let's be fair, yeah. have the advantage of only wrapping up their existing seasons.
3: To me, what really makes baseball's inability to solve this problem so difficult for the future is that it is a sport that depends crucially on this sort of national pastime status, which makes it highly at risk. So it doesn't have the, the built-in fan base. That I think hockey, basketball, and football has, it has a much broader sense, sense fa- fan base. If you go to a baseball game, You'll see, it's like a thing you do. You take your your kids to the baseball game. It's, it doesn't matter whether you like baseball or not. It's just like of something that happens. And there's this 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 position that baseball has. It's a even if you don't really like baseball or don't, it's not your favorite sport. It's something that you just do because it's something. It's very American, right? And it, I think, you baseball
2: might get a is, hot dog and a cold beer and it's yeah, nice I mean, weather and you know, the you don't have to, to play like a is
3: baby. also, uh, you know,
1: better right. Increased social interaction, not I, know, think, I distracted but, by what's going on,
3: right? But I think baseball is very high highly uh, vulnerable to inaction like this we saw this with the strike of, of years back and and that the hatred that gets that gets you know this kind of inability of the sides to come together and play the game i think could have a much bigger and more destructive impact on baseball's future than other sports in america
2: what well, is it fair to say you're describing a broad maybe broader than other sports but shallow Bay. Yes, Shallower absolutely the, broader, but more, that's more vulnerable. That's interesting.
0: So just to tie this also the national pastime to what Adi was saying about also to analytics. I keep going back to, I love baseball. Matter It might be my favorite sport to watch and I love every you. sport, but I might be my favorite <laughs> one to watch, but it's because of the statistics and yes. analytics of the game. I'm concerned that you play a 40, 50 game season I'm just telling you. I mean, yeah, yeah you yeah. could still compute a batting average. I get <laughs> it. You can. St- there still will be a someone's going to win the batting title, I guess. Maybe somebody will win the – home run team. title oh, will be
3: won, one, but guess. it won't be compared.
0: But, I mean, how do you compare it? How do you, again, say – because also, here's another thing. Another way maybe to frame it would be, and this gets actually back to the COVID discussion we're having, but not about COVID. Let's imagine they play 50 games. Suppose someone breaks the record – for whatever in the first 50 games of a season do i give him the record like is it the best well why not it's the best 50 games unless you want to say well this is a different 50 well we, we, we've had 50. examples
1: like this historically like um who was it uh uh tony Gwynn was above 400 heading into that strike shortened season and we don't talk about him like he hit 400 in that season right
0: well, he didn't. He ended up at like 388 or something.
1: But that seems like the only fair way you
2: could compare records is to right. say if, if they play 50 games and now you're comparing them to the first 50 games of other seasons. That's the only thing oh, yeah, you can do, the do that. The only thing I'm concerned but you about. Can't, I mean, you're not
1: going to be able to multiply it up.
0: You no, know, am not bowl, it up. You know, runs I'm not going but let me tell you what I'm concerned about. Again, we talk about rest all the time on this show. If you tell me you know you're only going to have to play 50 games. Like, if you told LeBron James at the beginning of the season he'd only have to play 20 or 30 games, you might see the 40-point, 15-assist, 18-rebound LeBron every single night because he doesn't have to worry about 82 games. That's I don't even know. So I'm saying I'm not even sure I can compare this 50 when you know you have 112 more to go to another 50. Yeah I, mean, what and, and saying- yeah I mean
1: i i fully concede i mean i think if 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 your chief kind of love for baseball is based on comparability to other years i mean this year is a complete write-off you know write-off. there's just it, but, no but, way but how many uh, my
2: pushback on that would be audi described the broad fan base as as broad but shallow eric the fan base that is as diehard as you are about analytics I would say it's pretty, it's pretty deep. You're not, yeah, no,
3: that's that's where where are you going to go? Listen, there's two types of baseball fans, right? So there's the, there's the Eric and the me and the people who really love baseball and, and go to a lot and watch it and care about it statistically. And And I think they're pretty, we're not very broad. We're pretty narrow, but we are very deep. But I think what makes baseball, what allows it to function and become so prominent is that it is really, really broad, but shallow for so many people. And those people really won't, care so much. Yeah, you and I and Eric and, the, and so all the, some of us who really care deeply about statistics, we're going to be throwing a pretty tight curveball and I don't know how to handle it. And we'll make something up and we'll have plenty to talk about and we'll never get any real answer. But it'll work towards your whole, whole Fame progress, I think, in some level. And there'll be some way that we can use that information that yeah, can get some stuff value. Still it'll, it'll help it is, uh, in your contracts in the future. We'll, we'll you gain some you, information.
2: You needed a curveball. You had the sabermetrics metric saying to figure that And it's, it out.
1: it's potentially <laughs> going to be kind of, if they can get on the field, it's going to be kind of fun. They're talking about it. 16 team playoff oh, now i just read today yeah. uh, it's, it's, a, it's a time to
3: experiment it's, hell what, yeah no thing is you know, no, is, experimentation
1: you know, i'm it, like once player. you give up on its you know comparability yeah. to other years that really kind of makes it all flexible you yeah, can actually move the start fences in. About, come on um, people
2: <laughs> so i want to point we, as we leave the baseball conversation i want to point people to an article by jeff passan i think it was late last week on the financials it's an espn article by Passany and we've had on the show before but he really lays out the economics pretty well and he's the, the arguments essentially the, the owners are going to take a big hit here and um the and and whenever you say as a baseball player you 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 were guaranteed prorata why would you back off prorata well it's to share some of the some of the pain essentially yeah. but they have a hard time the other thing is that the owners have the strength to impose baseball they can just say we're going to play 25 games go and um, the players in that situation have to weigh do I want a full pro rata for a shorter season, or might I be willing to take a little bit of a cutoff pro rata on a longer season in order to get more games because the players want to play more games? But Possum does a nice job of laying that out in the ESPN article if you want more details. Guys, they're further down the road with NHL and NBA, both leagues having. Uh, haven't agreed upon a format and all the details aren't out there yet, but broadly they're sketched. Have you had, have you had a chance to look at the details and do you have any reactions or any comparisons across the two?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm just kind of very positive on the format of the both playoff like kind of the qualifying. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting to kind of compare I mean, the NHL format, I think, is really interesting, where they basically have g- given up on the rest of the the, the... the regular season is officially kind of concluded as far as they're concerned, and they're just going to kind of do this qualifying round to kind of narrow down the teams, and then from there kind of do a regular uh, playoff format. The but NBA's be, kind of got that except
2: before you go let's be precise about that they yeah. are dividing the 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 team, the league into two tiers and so the top 4 teams in both conferences are granted the top 4 seeds in each conference but then they're going to play a round robin with each other yeah uh, to decide the the seeds that's so right i would i want to say again any system was going to have its drawbacks mm-hmm. but in the nhl in the west it doesn't you, you, the, the blues can't feel too bad they were barely above the avs out yeah. there in the West, but in the East, I mean, the Bruins just way ahead. And so to not recognize that it's something I appreciate about what the NBA is doing, because as they decided who would play in the postseason, they cut it a very odd arrangement. They, they took the qualifying teams right now, which is eight in each conference. And they added any team within six games, I think of the yeah, eighth within six, so it may, it led to this very unbalanced thing that seems so unorthodox. It's only one extra team comes out of the East, but, but five extra teams mm-hmm. come out of the, west which is really fair but leagues aren't known for doing unbalanced unorthodox things in the yeah. interest of fairness and i thought the nba should get props for
0: that i, what I ask the question to you guys so the milwaukee bucks by for guaranteed we're going to be the one seed in basketball in the east okay now they're still the one seed, probably. They're still the same. They're going to be the one seed.
2: So hold on, they're going to play something like eight regular season games right. to they have finish no, like up six, the seed. They have a
0: six or seven game lead on number two. They're going to be the one seed in the East. But they are but, but playing real eight. quickly.
2: Have they announced the details on who plays who in these regular season games?
0: Well, you, yes, they have. So you play out your schedule. As Assuming
1: if, it's one of the twenty-two teams that are
2: to kind yeah, of invited. Yeah. Whole yeah. So game,
0: they eliminate right? the teams that are not invited, and then you play out your schedule
2: they must have had to finagle the schedules because somebody got eliminated who they were going to play
1: so no i I think it's just those games disappear so uh, different teams are going to be playing different amounts of games to finish out the season no
2: no they must have read they must have created a new schedule they had
1: to
0: no they didn't they 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 actually each it was that balanced it was that balanced it was let me say why but when i say balance let's be clear that at the end of these eight games, and this is one of the interesting parts, every team will not have played the same number of games because they've played a different number going into this. And this is where, this is what I put on our rundown, where win percentage matters. Let me give you an example. Suppose my record is 30 and 40, okay? And Shane's record is 29 and 39, okay? So I've played two more games. I've gone one win, one loss. In games back, we're quote unquote tied, but I'm ahead of Shane because I've I've got a higher winning percentage. If we both go four and four the rest of the way, I end up ahead of him because I end up with a higher winning percentage, even though we're the same number of games back. And so there is actually, there's going to be this tiebreaker at the end where winning percentages could very well, especially in the West, you just brought it up, Kate. There are four teams tied With the same number of games back, but one of them's played two more games and therefore is actually ahead of the other three teams, assuming they end up with the same record. I think it's the Sacramento Mm -hmm. Kings are ahead of the 10, 11, 12, and 13 because – They've played two more games, and they went one and one. in those. But, games. I mean, they
1: are specifically kind of fighting. Unless they leapfrog, you know, they're specifically fighting for that eight slot where they – that eight, nine kind of – they do have that extra kind of thing in there to take into account sort of. But I
0: just mentioned if nine, 10, 11, and 12 in the West all go four and four during this break, yeah. Sacramento's the nine. They get to play the eight. Right, not ten, eleven, or twelve. That's right. In
2: some, in some sense, that's that's reasonable way to break the tie. Right, you have a slightly larger sample yeah. on which to infer that that's the true underlying quality. So it's not the crazy way to break the tie, since we have to break some ties given the whacked the whacked arrangement that we
0: have.
3: Well, I you know I've heard a lot about the the sports. I want to go back to something you said shane earlier about hockey i think the playoffs are quite random in hockey but the regular season does differentiate the better teams from the worst teams from the most part that that yes like- no
1: that's right no and, and but I, I just think i think um the kind of uh the disparity between teams is just like less stark overall in yeah. hockey mm-hmm. and so i mean yes the worst team you know it's it's good to get rid, re- you, you know the regular season definitely allows you to get rid of some kind of pretty obviously bad teams but you know the difference between the eighth seed and the one seed in hockey, I think, is great. It's not that much. Is smaller than it is in basketball. Well, in basketball, you know, that, basketball's got, got a huge disparity. You've got like right. these yeah. two or three super teams, and maybe it'll be a little bit less, a little bit more random this year compared to past years. But
0: it, it still is less random, I think, in the playoffs. Do we think that the because everyone is starting up again and there won't be as many games, if you'd like to get playoff ready, that that's going to kind of shrink everything inwards. Like if we could play an infinite yeah. number, which we can't, but if we if we could play an infinite number of ones versus eight, would a, whether it's basketball, NHL, would a larger fraction of eights win than we've seen historically? <laughs> One would argue that you one you would have it, right? Yeah. Because yeah.
3: you know it's not the usual state of affairs. But we could argue that the the better teams their their dominance would be more dominant. Yeah. It could could it much, right, so, you could make that argument. How much? Yeah. What, what
2: what is it that confers their advantage? Is it is it prep and pattern and, and and rigor, or is it just natural ability?
1: Certainly, I mean, like like in baseball. Coming back to that, because we think so much about sample sizes in baseball you know i mean the you know of course the yankees were kind of coming into the regular 2020 season looking like world beaters as a fan mm-hmm. of a top team you must be the the fact that it's at most going to be like a half a season you know and an expanded playoffs clearly kind of does disadvantage kind of quote-unquote the
0: best teams sure right? if i'd rather play an infinite number of games mm-hmm. uh, one, mm-hmm. another thing i was thinking about is the thing that thing that great the storytelling around analytics is going to be is what I call the if I had known theory. (laughs) So it's like, if I'm like, I'll make it up, if I'm the Sixers, well, if I had known the season was going to end, I wouldn't have been the sixth seed. I would have tried a lot harder in these games, and I could have been the three or the four seed. So you're going to hear a lot of this if I had known narrative. And that's the nice thing about baseball, at least. Since none of the season's been played, and we hope some of it gets played, everyone's going to know. So if you think you should just play harder for 50 games like everyone's going to be Cal rip doing
3: the today. same thing yes, all, right.
0: all 50 it. games then that's it you go ahead
1: an interesting if i have known type uh, thing is you know the, the red Sox. you know the big news of the red Sox offseason is they traded away their best player mookie bats for a bunch of young talent genius and in yeah. part because <laughs> he's a free agent at the end of this year imagine like like if the season doesn't get played and they just resign him did they just get those other players for nothing incredible
3: Incredible. Unbelievable! How <laughs> does that work? <laughs> Talk about the greatest move in baseball history.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, chance, chance like that happens. I mean, the Thunder yeah. lost Durant because because the chance of the cap that yeah. one year that spike that allowed the Warriors to add him. I mean, chance does happen, and chance affects entire organizations' paths.
3: Yeah. Well, you make this point in in, in football all the time. You know, you bump yourself into a, an unbelievable franchise quarterback, which you really can't know when you draft them, as you've shown over and over again. And yep. then what a, let's, how'd that happen? I mean, the, 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 you know, the Indianapolis Colts exhibit A
2: on that. They happen to be number one when Peyton Manning came across, and they happen to be number one 20 years later when uh, Andrew Luck came across. But speaking of all pro NFL quarterbacks, and just to get one note on football in here, our buddy Josh Hermsmeyer posted an article at 538 last weekend, and you all see this thing. He says, Steve Young was the better quarterback. We apologize, Joe Montana. Did y'all have a chance to look at this? And do you, do you, can you believe? Do you have any priors? I in saw the tweet, but I didn't see conclusion? the article. <laughs> do you have any priors that would allow the conclusion that Young was a better quarterback than Joe Montana?
1: I mean, I have not actually sort of read the details of the statistics, but I mean, you know, I, I think you can make a kind of, I, I certainly, you can make an argument that like in terms of a peak season or something like that, in terms of peak performance, those couple of seasons that Steve Young turned in, like kind of around their Super Bowl, well, I, I think, are our, our, our certainly superior kind of numerical seasons to anything that Joe Montana did in, in, in kind of the same time frame in his career. Of course, Joe Montana had that greater law, longevity, and so it's kind of hard to balance that out. I mean, of course, that's what we do for any Hall of Fame discussion is try and balance longevity versus peak. But mm-hmm. I, I guess that would be sort of, you know, where I would start with arguing that Steve Young was the better quarterback is he Wait, can- probably did have a better peak.
3: Can I get some clarification? When we talk about the better quarterback, is this is this the old if I had to sign them again and run it the season forward, who would I rather? Or are we looking backwards and saying who did the better job with what they got?
1: I don't think there's any consensus on that. Yeah.
3: But what know. did Hermsmeyer do? You can you can ask him what, think, are, what which think, criteria does he, did he say do. Which is the better? Like if you were gonna power rank
2: these things, who would who would you say is the who, whose underlying quality was actually higher?
3: Okay. So that's, that's, if I had to redo it and then yeah, I think all the other the random nature. factors would get restarted, yeah, who'd I, think I want? That's the nature. I think that's Well,
0: the nature. we know, we know Steve Young was a better runner. I would not be surprised if he was a more accurate quarterback than uh, Joe Montana. And I would imagine that advanced analytics might have a lot to say about um, who was able to complete certain passes. So it does not shock me as much as I know the title is meant to be shocking.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the thing is, with so much of what we think of as historic about Montana Is his ability to win those crucial games in the key times with the comebacks in two minutes and however long he did? And those are not things that predict going forward. Those are, those are. Yeah,
1: no, I mean, that's right. And retrospectively, you know, you can look, you know, and I mean, I think we have. (laughs) <laughs> we make these arguments kind of more even modern day type arguments. If you're talking about kind of the greatest quarterback of all time in terms of retrospective performance, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious the guy that won six Super Bowls. Oh, right? here we go. But, <laughs> but, 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 but I mean, I think you could make a strong, you know, a, pro, a more oh kind God. of prospective argument is like if Aaron Rodgers was right. on that team, would they have right. won like eight Super Bowls or something like that? Or like, you know, like expected to win uh, it. But in but in but the same situation, really like- could another quarterback? quarterback? quarterback have done as well
2: I love Adi's point because it is outside of analytics I mean most analytics most 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 advocates of analytics are pretty skeptical of this clutch argument and as Adi said Montana was famous even in college he was famous for these last you know this last minute drives and so if you think that was luck it's gonna it's gonna get discounted and he might come in behind young but if you if you think there's something fundamental about that then it might give him a notch and it's not going to be in Josh's analytics. That's for danger. Sure.
3: But even if it isn't fundamental, what is the purpose of sport in some level is to, is the, we reward the person who gets it done when it needed to get done. Even if we don't imagine it would happen again, right? There's some beauty. When we, and this is an argument about what it means to be most valuable. And some of the analytics get so focused on figuring out who was most valuable under the skills argument. Like who would you rather have, going forward based on what we saw in the past. That's their essential question they're arguing. As opposed to who did it when you needed to get it done last year, which is not an analytical thing. Although analytics does have enormous to say about it. it, it, it it's about just, it's, I love because this our, because our it's, measures it's, it's parsing,
2: it parses two very pure components of Audi. One is the statistician <laughs> nerd and the other is the traditionalist sports fan. And, and, you're, and you're really you're across really, you <laughs> yeah, the divide when you make the argument you just made, which was, no, oh, I just want the guy who can get it done in the moment.
1: And, I do, uh, it, uh, no, no, I anyways, want the you guys, to celebrate. The guys that are getting it done, the way you measure that is unfortunately with kind of team levels, like outcomes, right? The guys who get yes. it done are the ones that lead their teams to victories more. But then once you're talking about like looking, comparing wins, it's, it's not no, entirely their effort. You know? You're
3: absolutely right, particularly when you have a, an incredible line or, or you have lots of support that's, where it's remarkable. That does diminish a bit of the accomplishment. But I'm talking about things that are really like the comebacks, that, that home run, that clutch home run, that three-point shot from from 30 feet. But Adi, Those things can, are not things that predict, but nevertheless we can recognize their artistry, their value. Oh, of course. And, and that, I think, and that's oh, yeah. why it's shocking to people that they would see young over Montana because they are overestimating in their minds the value of those events and underplaying other factors. All right.
2: Well, a great discussion. I'm glad to get a little football in here. We can fantasize about talking about real football in the next couple of months, but we can also fantasize about baseball getting through their impasse, the, the imminent basketball postseason, the imminent NHL postseason. We might have some sports in front of us yet, fellas. That has been... Another Wharton Moneyball. We do a full hour here virtually, and we'll keep doing that. We'll be back and do it next week. Hope you can join us between now and then for the whole crew here. Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Brattle. the Ciscade Massey. Enjoy your sport.